guys, I'm Ray Bella, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the podcast, you can show your support via Patreon. Just head over to patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, or follow the link under the contribute tab at wordsforgranted.com. Every little bit adds up. Really. For just a buck or two a month, which is less than what you'd pay for a bad cup of coffee, I know it, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. The latest contributors episode explores why certain animal words, such as deer, sheep, and fish, are the same in both their singular and plural forms. But in addition to the bonus episodes, you also get to walk away knowing that you're helping to sustain the output of this independent show. All right, let's get on to today's episode, part four in the Words for Granted miniseries on grammar. The is the most common word in the English language. According to one statistic, the occurs five times in every 100 words. We can reframe that statistic like this. Every time we speak, we literally spend 5% of that time saying the word the. That may seem like a whole lot, but when you think about it, it shouldn't be that surprising. The is the only definite article that we have in our language, and it gets used basically every time we mention a specific common noun. In contrast, consider a language such as Spanish. Not only does Spanish have two definite articles based on the masculine and feminine grammatical genders, these are L and La respectively, but those two definite articles change to los and las when used to describe plural nouns. As someone inclined to listen to this show in the first place, you probably already know that the is a definite article. But what exactly is a definite article? By definition, a definite article is a small word used before a noun that has been specified, is about to be specified, or is already known. So, if we're talking about a specific apple, we say the apple, as in the apple on the table is red. That's not any old apple, but the one on the table. When we talk about nouns that aren't specified or already known, we instead use an indefinite article. In English, the indefinite articles are a and an. So, if we are in fact talking about any old apple or an apple in the abstract, we say an apple, as in an apple in the abstract. For the record, not all languages have definite and indefinite articles, and some languages have even more categories of articles than these. Despite its ubiquity and universality as the sole definite article in modern English, the history of the isn't exactly straightforward. Believe it or not, Old English had not one, not two, not four, but 20 definite articles. Yes, you heard me right, 20. These 20 forms of the Old English definite article corresponded to different grammatical cases, genders, and numbers. Of these 20 forms, 12 of them were completely unique words. So the first question you may be wondering is why? Why in the world did Old English need so many ways of saying the? As modern English proves, just one definite article works just fine. As I've already implied, the reason for this has to do with the nature of Old English grammar. Old English was a highly inflected language. In linguistics, inflection refers to the various case endings or forms a word might take in order to mark its part of speech, grammatical gender, or number. 
On the contrary, modern English is a highly uninflected language. We do inflect most plural nouns with an S ending, and we also inflect subject, object, and possessive pronouns according to their parts of speech, like I, me, mine, etc. But compared to the system of inflection in Old English, this is a minor hassle, to say the least. Grammatical inflection in modern English is so scarce that some linguists consider it to be an analytical language. An analytical language is one that uses word order and helper words like prepositions in order to convey grammar. And indeed, this is the main way that English gets its point across. Old English had five grammatical cases that apply to its nouns, pronouns, and adjectives. These cases were the nominative, accusative, genitive, dative, and instrumental. The first four of these basically correspond to the subject, direct object, possessive, and indirect object parts of speech in modern English. The last one, the somewhat uncommon instrumental case, was used for nouns that help a subject noun achieve its end. If that sounds confusing, don't worry about it too much, because we don't have a distinct equivalent of this in modern English. Anyway, each of these distinct cases had its own inflected form. For those who may not know, all the forms of a word within this system of inflection are collectively called a declension. I'm going to be using that word throughout the rest of this episode, so if you're unfamiliar with it, please take note. On top of this case system, Old English had three grammatical genders, masculine, feminine, and neuter, each of which had their own forms within the case system. Of course, modern English has no gendered nouns, so we can't really compare this feature to anything in our language. Last but not least, Old English had two grammatical numbers, singular and plural, and this of course still persists in modern English to this day. As I already said, grammatical case, gender, and number apply to nouns, pronouns, and adjectives, and technically, both definite and indefinite articles are adjectives. We don't necessarily think of a and the as adjectives, but they are indeed words that describe nouns. They describe the specificness or unspecificness of a noun. Given this fact, it follows that the Old English word for the had a masculine, a feminine, and a neuter form, each of which had its own complete declension. It also had a plural declension that was mutually shared by all three genders. I know this will be a lot to take in, but I want to give you a full list of all the Old English words for the. Let's start with the masculine nominative form of the. This word was say. You can think of the nominative form of the word as the stem of the declension. The word say ultimately derives from the Indo-European root word so, which meant this or that. The accusative, genitive, dative, and instrumental inflections of say were thone, thas, them, and thu or thon. The instrumental case had two recorded forms. The feminine nominative form of the was seo, which also derives from the Proto-Indo-European root word so. Its accusative, genitive, dative, and instrumental forms were tha, thare, there, and thara, respectively. The neuter nominative form of the was that. Unlike the masculine and feminine nominative stems, the neuter nominative stem derived from a completely different Proto-Indo-European root word, toad. However, just like the root word so, toad also meant this or that, but 
under different grammatical circumstances. More on this very shortly. Last but not least, let's look at the definite article's plural forms. The plural stem for the was tha, also derived from the Proto-Indo-European root word tod, and its accusative, genitive, dative, and instrumental forms were tha, thara, tham, and them. This declension was shared by nouns of all three genders. Now, unless you have a hyper-aptitude for absorbing and retaining audio information, you might want to rewind and listen to that again. If you'd like to see a chart of this stuff to make the reference a little bit easier, I've posted one over at wordsforgranted.com. Alas, learning things like full declensions of adverbs in dead languages aren't really suited for the podcasting format, but I'm trying my best here. I hope that was clear. Now, you probably noticed something striking about the various forms of the Old English definite articles. The masculine and feminine stems, se and seo, don't sound anything like their inflected forms. Furthermore, the inflected forms of se and seo sound more like the neuter and plural paradigms of the definite article's declension, both of which contain a full set of words beginning with the th sound. If you listen to the second episode in this grammar mini-series, in which I discussed the irregular forms of the verb to be, you probably are thinking that the inflections of se and seo are suppletive. Suppletion, for those who may have missed that episode, occurs when the various grammatical forms of a word derive from etymologically distinct roots. Indeed, the inflections of se and seo ultimately derive from toad, that other Proto-Indo-European root word that I mentioned, which is responsible for the neuter and plural stems of the definite article in Old English. However, as I already mentioned, so and toad both meant this or that, and it's because they were irregular inflections of the same demonstrative adjective in Proto-Indo-European. So referred to animate things, and toad referred to inanimate things. In other words, the Proto-Indo-European word for this or that was irregularly inflected from the start. Millennia later, as this pair of words developed into the different grammatical forms of the definite article in Old English, this irregularity stemming from the source was maintained. So, is it technically considered suppletion when the oldest form of a root word was suppletive itself? I actually don't know the answer to this question, so if any of you listening happens to be a certified Proto-Indo-European linguist, please write into me at wordsforgranted at gmail.com to let me know, and I'll share the info with the class on the next episode. Anyway, let's get back to English. Sometime around the 9th century CE, the nominative form of the masculine definite article, which you'll recall was se, began being pronounced as the probably due to the phonetic influence of all of its inflected forms. We know that this sound change took place because the actual spelling of the word changed in order to reflect the th sound. However, in Old English, the th digraph that we associate with the th sound today had not yet been invented. That spelling convention would not become popular until at least the 14th century, thanks to the influence of Norman French scribes who had come into the country from mainland Europe. In Old English, the th sound was represented by the letter thorn, a letter now extinct in modern English. If you can imagine a capital letter P with the circular part moved halfway down the stem, that's what thorn looked like. 
It was borrowed from the runic alphabet used by the Germanic peoples before they inherited the Roman alphabet. Although the TH digraph began appearing during the 14th century, that doesn't mean that thorn had immediately become obsolete. Over time, the shape of thorn began to morph, almost resembling a letter Y, and in scribal shorthand, it became conventional to write the word the with this Y-ish-looking thorn letter with a little E on top of it. It's kind of hard to imagine, so I've posted an image of that on the website as well. Check it out. This convention persisted all the way into early modern English in some regions, and consequently, it was adapted by the printing press. However, the printing press didn't have a special key for the letter thorn, so this scribal shorthand way of writing the was simply rendered Y-E. This is the written form of the that appeared in the earliest printed edition of the King James Bible, interestingly enough. Even though it was written with the letter Y, the Middle English and Early Modern English version of the was never pronounced with a Y. In fact, this is the convention that produced the phrase ye old, as in ye old pub. The ye in ye old is really just the. Apparently, it was a tongue-in-cheek, deliberately mispronounced anachronism that became widespread in the 18th century. Today, of course, The anachronism is so anachronistic that the tongue-in-cheek aspect of it has been lost, as many people misunderstand the word to actually be ye. Ye, of course, is an archaic inflection of the second-person pronoun, and it makes no sense in the phrase ye old. That was kind of a major jump ahead in the timeline, but it seemed like the appropriate time to share that little detail with you while we were on the topic of spelling. A bit of a digression, but hopefully it was an interesting one. Back in our main narrative, we were somewhere around the 9th century CE, and the pronunciation of se, the masculine nominative definite article, had shifted to the. By the mid-10th century, this altered pronunciation was also being used in place of the feminine stem seo, the neuter stem that, and even the plural stem tha. The, or was on its way to becoming the only definite article in English. By the next century, the Old English case system would begin to erode, and thus the various inflections of the definite article began to erode with it. I'm not going to cover why the case system eroded in this episode, because A, the reasons aren't exactly cut and dry, B, it would turn this into an hour-long episode, and C, its details don't really impact our story. However, what I will say is that the decline of the K system happened at different rates in different parts of England, so whenever I attach dates to historical developments of the language, I'm speaking very generally with a bias toward the most dominant linguistic trends. Now, you may have noticed that the nominative neuter definite article stem, that, sounds a whole lot like the modern English word, that. That's because that actually derives from that. In Old English, there was no distinction between definite articles and the demonstrative sense of that, as in, I like that song. That song would simply have been called the song. However, after the case system began to break down, instead of dying out, the neuter nominative stem of the Old English definite article, which had been replaced by the, began to develop a new usage. 
it was applied to nouns of all genders as a more emphatic and specific way of saying the. The word that can still be used in this sense today. In fact, this is precisely how it's used in the sentence, I like that song. In the 13th century, that began to be used in contrast to this, and thus it came to imply things farther away in some comparative contexts. Around the same time, it also began to be used as an adverb implying extent or degree, as in, I'm not that tired. Interestingly, in Middle English, the word that was sometimes used as a definite article, but only before words beginning with vowels. This was for the sake of easier pronunciation. When speaking quickly, it's hard to pronounce the word the before vowel sounds, such as the oven or the apple. Nowadays, we get around this difficulty by subbing in the word the, as in the oven or the apple. However, according to some instances in the written record, this originally was also the domain of the word that. I should mention that some etymological sources have proposed that seo, the feminine nominative form of the Old English definite article, is actually the ultimate origin of the pronoun she. Before the 13th century, the English word for she was heo. It was simply the feminine inflection of the word for he, and the initial H sound in this root is preserved in the object pronoun her. The basis of this theory claims that after the Old English case system broke down, historically feminine nouns were still being referred to by this feminine definite article. At some point, the pure S sound of seo had shifted to a sh sound, and its popularity trumped that of the original word hail. This is just one of a handful of theories concerning the ambiguous etymology of she, and to be honest, I'm not completely convinced by it. Since this episode isn't about she, I'm not going to go any further into its other proposed etymologies. In the absence of a standardized system of spelling, during the Middle English period, the had developed many variant pronunciations and spellings throughout England. Some of these pronunciations include they, the, thu, and theo, and some of these spellings include t-h-e-e, t-h-e, t-h-i, t-h-y, t-h-e-i, thorn e, thorn y, and the previously discussed oddity of y-e, and even y-h-e. By the modern English period, its mainstream pronunciation had probably flattened out to the much like it is today, and certainly by the 17th century, its spelling had conformed to the familiar T-H-E. Although the is the definite article in English, there is one instance in which it serves a different grammatical purpose. Can you think of what it is? In some comparative expressions, the word the actually functions not as an article, but as a more conventional adverb. Some of these expressions, such as the more the merrier and the harder they come, the harder they fall, are actually common idioms. But we also use these sentence frames as models to express many comparative situations. For example, the longer you run, the more tired you'll feel. Or, the sooner I finish this script, the sooner I can release this episode. We use sentence frames like this all the time, and because they're so ubiquitous, native English speakers don't intuitively realize that the is doing anything different than usual. But it is. 
Technically, it's being used to indicate the proportional dependence between notions expressed by two clauses. As I think I've mentioned on this podcast once before, I teach ESL part-time, and this comparative sentence frame has definitely confused some of my students, and I can totally see why. Not only is the usual grammatical function of the obscured, but there's also no verb connecting the two clauses to form a complete thought, according to prescriptivist notions of what a complete thought is. Given what we've discussed thus far, it should come as no surprise that this usage of the is actually a remnant of Old English grammar. It's a holdover from the instrumental case, that rarest of grammatical cases that I mentioned at the start of this episode. As a refresher, the instrumental case is used for nouns that help subject nouns achieve their ends. This grammatical etymology makes a lot of sense when you think about the literal meaning of these comparative sentence frames. In a phrase like, the harder you work, the more money you'll earn, the work in the first clause helps you earn the money in the second clause. The work is both grammatically and literally instrumental in this process. All right, that's it for this one, guys. Yet again, I'd like to remind you that you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash words for granted. But if that's not in your budget, you can still show your support by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts, aka iTunes, or your podcast directory of choice. You can also just tell a friend about the show. How easy is that? I'm on Twitter at, at words for granted and Facebook as words for granted. And you can email me directly with questions, comments, and concerns at, yet again, wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Okay, have a great day, guys. I'll catch you next time here at Words for Granted.